We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. The ability to tell a good story is valuable. And not only when the story is the product, like it is in journalism, stories can build understanding, trust, and connection with members, prospects, and investors alike. Storytelling is an important skill in the membership economy. And Daniel Seberg is a fantastic storyteller. Daniel started his career as a journalist and writer, working for the likes of CNN and CBS News. He went on to work at the intersection of news and technology at Google, where he was a senior leader in the Google News Lab. As a journalist and a technologist, Daniel knows how to tell and share stories. He's used these skills well at GoodTrust, the subscription-based company he co-founded to help people safeguard their digital assets and share them with loved ones today or after they pass away. Daniel has an interesting title. He currently serves as chief storyteller. He uses his experience in journalism to build trust, understanding, and connection with good trust stakeholders, members, investors, and partners. I recently interviewed Daniel for the inaugural D2C Summit, a new conference I co-created with the Global Media Association, FIP. And I want to share that conversation with you here on the podcast. In our conversation, we talk about how to launch a new company in an undefined space, the power of transparency in storytelling, and how to use a journalistic lens to turbocharge your market research strategy. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you, Robbie. Uh, that's a really kind introduction. It's great to be with you. Can you explain what Good Trust is and the mission of Good Trust? Sure. So, at a high level, Good Trust is a digital legacy platform. And to unpack that a little bit, our mission is to allow anyone to preserve, to share, or even to possibly delete anything they've ever done in a digital sense the digital story of you. So, that could mean all the photos and videos you've ever created emails, text messages, social media profiles, banking and financial information, different accounts, everything that basically represents what you've done in an online sense with your smartphone and with your laptop and any other sort of device. You know, we've all been connected in some capacity for the better part of 20 years. And we've built up this personal legacy, the digital story of us. And Good Trust Mission is to allow you to have choice and control over what it is that happens to all of that. And we're also offering ways for people to create that digital legacy using new technologies like AI and facial recognition. So it's a bit of a new space, but it's also something that's been around for a long time in many ways. And we believe the opportunity is to help people to sort it out. Before you even launched the company of Good Trust with Ricard Cyber, you wrote a book about digital legacy. Why did you do that? 
Well, you know, Rickard and I both worked at Google. Uh, we didn't know each other when we were there, but we were introduced by a fellow former Googler. And when we started talking last year, this was right around the time that the pandemic was accelerating and people were fearful of what was happening. There were a lot of unknowns. And Rickard personally encountered a situation where a good friend of his had passed away during COVID and his widow had reached out to him and asked Rickard to try to solve this issue of getting access to his digital stuff, his digital assets. Some of what we're talking about is more sort of on the pragmatic or the logical side, whether it's accounts or or information, data. On the other hand, it's all of the emotional stories and memories that are wrapped up in all of this. And she couldn't figure out what to do. And, and it struck Rickard as an opportunity to empower others to do this themselves. And so we thought that a book would allow for us to dig into this issue and really understand it ourselves, but more importantly, to help to generate awareness around something that we saw as increasingly important. And while the book was started around the same time that Good Trust was founded, it's really quite untethered from Good Trust as a company. We went about it as a journalistic enterprise. We wanted to be as independent as possible in putting it together and really look at the facts and the research and help to highlight some of the challenges and the opportunities within the whole digital legacy space, which is still a relatively new term uh, for many people. Yeah, digital legacy is definitely a new term. I know um, Apple recently used that term, which shows you know at least some increasing awareness in the, in the popular culture. That's right. At the Worldwide Developers Conference just this past week, Apple announced that they're making it possible for people to assign essentially a legacy contact, somebody who you would designate to have access to your iCloud, your iCloud Plus, your information that's stored within Apple, and ensure that that's passed on in a way that feels respectful to the person who's involved. And I think we were sort of excited in a way to, to hear that Apple is thinking about this so much. It was a, a small mention and of course, the grand scheme of a lot of stuff that Apple's doing. But for a company like Apple to come out and, and address this publicly and to say that we believe that this is important and we want to really allow people to, to figure this out, we saw as a, as a signal that this is becoming a much more mainstream issue and something that people need to think about. You know, Google has today something called Inactive Account Manager, which probably 95% of people who use Google products, which are on the order of, I'm going to say, billions of people are unaware of that it even exists. You know, Facebook has a legacy contact that's been there for a while, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And so what we see as Good Trust is this kind of holistic opportunity for people to take care of their entire digital legacy and importantly, to plan ahead. So for example, we're also gonna be offering the ability for people to create a will or medical directives, funeral directives, all the ways that you can feel like your entire end of life is taken care of. And you know, the average person spends close to seven hours or more uh, connected in some capacity. So the reality is that so much of what means anything to us is either in the cloud, on our devices, in places where it may be difficult to pass on to people, but is incredibly meaningful and, and priceless. All the research that you did early on in, in Good Trust's existence for the book, this kind of independent research project that you took on. How did that inform the way that you entered the market? 
with your business? Well, you know, it was, uh, I would say it was a combination of the, the research that we did for the book, which included talking to a lot of experts, people who are more on the technology side, people who are on the, the human psychology side. So what does this mean to all of us? And what does it represent about our identity uh, on the legal side? You know, there's a lot of different uh, sort of, uh, you know, inroads to, to this whole concept of, of digital legacy. So that helped to inform what we were thinking about with Good Trust. But also, we created a survey, uh, a Google survey that we sent out to people to get a sense of what they know or they don't know about this entire subject. And what we found is that 90% of people had no idea what happens to their digital stuff when they die. And in tandem with that, we learned that about 80% of the people who responded to that survey would be willing to sign up for and pay for a service that would allow them to do that. So it helped to kind of allow us to create this framework of what we were going to put together. You know, Good Trust started as an idea, as any entrepreneurial enterprise does, and it, it allowed us to kind of get some early indicators of what was important to people. We've continued to think about surveys as a way to inform a lot of our direct-to-consumer marketing and campaigns that we put together. You know, there's really, there aren't many other ways to really get that kind of pulse of what people are thinking about, what's on the minds of, of everyone, how are they really feeling about something? You know, it it's, can be difficult to get to the truth of what people are feeling and particularly what they're willing to pay for or spend their time with. So we relied on that early data to kind of help to shape what we were doing. You know, you made me think of something. One of the other guests at the conference, Ariel Zerulnik of the uh, Membership Puzzle Project, was saying that one of the biggest strategies that she advises news organizations uh, to do when they're trying to build membership is to look at your customers through your journalist eyes, to be curious and to really understand them. And I'm just thinking that that's exactly what you did, both with the book and with the ongoing surveying, to really try to understand what the market looks like and also how your, your prospective customers and existing members feel about the the area where you're helping them. Absolutely. I think you almost, there's sort of that empathic way of putting yourself in the shoes of the customer and remembering that the likelihood that you know more about whatever it is that you think is a good idea or a good story or something that people are interested in, you've had the time and the opportunity to really dig into all of that. They may not have had all of that. So to kind of learn where they are in their journey of understanding this being interested in it, uh, devoting themselves to it, committing to it, signing up for it, whatever it is, you know, there, there's a, a real opportunity to kind of connect with that audience and ensure that you're meeting them kind of where they are, but also I think kind of helping them to level up, pulling them into something that, you know, you think they could benefit from. That's really the opportunity with any journalistic story. You're hoping that this is going to help them to learn something, to, to educate them, to stay informed. And the same is true of any product or company that you're promoting. Ideally, it feels like it has a net benefit to people's lives. Otherwise, I think it, it tends to run out of steam at a certain point if it doesn't feel like it's in service of others and helping others, which is something that, you know, Rickard and I and others on the team talked about early on. You know, the, the term technology for good may have sort of been a little overused over time. People sort of feel like that's a bit tired. But we really believe in the opportunity. You know, the irony is that, you know, 
in a way, technology helped to create the challenge or the problem, if you will, of the the fact that we are all so connected in this wonderful way, because of course it allows for so much remote communications and what would we have done without it during the pandemic and so on. But then the harsh reality that we all need to accept is that we all do pass away and die. And, and those stories and memories are can be locked up in a way that we can't get access to them. You know, I would say that companies like Ancestry and 23andMe, you know, were the early ways, early-ish ways, they've been around for a while now, but to get people to think about their genealogy, about their family tree, about how important that connective tissue is of those human stories and, and why it's so critical to retain them, to pass them on, to learn from them. You know, and I and I think that, you know, what we're hoping is that Good Trust is kind of the evolution of all of that. And, it, you know, we're still relatively early, but there's all kinds of stuff that we're thinking about um, that, that I get excited about. I know Rickard does. And there are others in this space that are kind of thinking of ways to, to really make this feel uh, in service of, of you know, a, a scalable company that reaches people all over the world. It's a universal issue. It's not something unique <laughs> to where you live. We, we all die. And most of us are on Google or Facebook or any one of the, the many other uh, online digital experiences. So Yeah, we sort of joke that, the, you know, people say that the certainties are death and taxes. Well, I think we might layer in, you know, <laughs> the internet in there in some way, right? <laughs> it's just connectivity is, is, is kind of a certainty in life for the vast majority of people on this planet. I've had the opportunity to travel to close to 70 countries and everywhere I go, I'm sort of amazed, but also really not that surprised that that's how people stay informed, get their information, news, all all the ways that we know that connectivity has helped the planet to feel a little smaller, a little closer together. And now it's time for us to think about what does this mean for future generations and how do we do this responsibly? You brought up something about you know wanting to meet people where they are and then be with them on their journey. So when I think about your business, that journey is sort of, there's the journey of building out their digital footprint. And there's also the journey of, of realizing that one day you won't be here anymore. When I work with, with organizations that are building an ongoing relationship directly with their customers, one of the big challenges in getting started is who do you aim for first? Who is your ideal initial audience? And often it helps to think about where they are in their journey. How do you think about, especially when you were just getting started, who to reach out to first that was most likely to be receptive to the message since since theoretically anybody on earth could be interested how did you decide where in the journey and where in the world to start yeah great question i mean in, in a way you know as we were saying it does affect everybody on the other hand you know i remember when i was at google and there was a, a senior uh, marketing leader there led the creative lab andy burnt and when we were building out the news lab he would say well who's the audience for this news lab who are you thinking about with this we said, well, it's it's mostly journalists. It could be, by extension, consumers. They might be interested in what we're up to, but you know, we have a fairly targeted audience with what we're thinking about. And he said, well, that's great because you know, so many times I hear at Google that what we're launching is like for everybody. It's for anybody, you know, and it can be so hard to think about how it's received, what it is that you're doing exactly for different audiences. The coin of the realm in a lot of ways that people think about direct to consumer these days is hyper targeting, right? reaching unique audiences with a message that's going to resonate with them. Because, of course, we all have a unique journey through life. We're not all at the same point. We're not all thinking about the same stuff. So what we sought to do 
in addition to the survey data, which with Google surveys, you can segment it out by different age groups or demographics, and you can start to understand a little bit of what people are interested in. We also work with a great marketing agency called Neil Patel Digital, and they've been helping us put together these personas of people who we would all sort of think based on survey data, based on what we've learned in the media, based on kind of where people are just in their life, these kind of uh, personas that help to identify who these people are. And for us, I would say, you know, broadly speaking, it has to do with people who probably have a family. So you've you've started a family of children, maybe you're you're married. There's sort of like these seminal life events that have happened in your life and they've got you thinking a little bit about your own mortality. And then right through to people who are let's say in their 40s, 50s, they spent a lot of time connected in some way, they've built up all this digital legacy and they're maybe at a point now where they're thinking about what to do with it. They're creating a will, they're assigning people to be those beneficiaries or the people they want to, you know, have this passed on to. And so I would say that that helped us to inform at least some of our messaging and direct-to-consumer marketing. It's not the entire way that we look at it because we also see that there's some survey data that came out recently that younger people, for example, I'm going to say sort of in the millennial category, particularly because of COVID, were more apt to create a will because the simple fact is that during especially during the you know the most intense periods of covid we were all surrounded by the idea of death we we couldn't go anywhere or or look anywhere without hearing about it and i think it really triggered a sense of i or anyone needs to be prepared we need to think about this stuff even at a younger age when historically that may not have even entered people's minds um there are also reasons that we think that younger audiences might want to start to plan ahead with their digital legacy now Maybe it starts to represent their digital identity a little bit. So it's something that they can kind of see reflected back to them a little bit. Some of us have no idea where all of our digital stuff is, which profiles we have, what does it represent about us? So maybe those younger audiences can see an opportunity to kind of get in early. So there's a little bit of a, a timeline, if you will, that we kind of think about with all of this. But we have to think about with that direct-to-consumer message, what are we saying to those audiences? Where do we sort of meet them where they are in that way? And, and help them to see uh, the opportunity. And so by extension, the products that we offer, the ways that we you know, create that content and, and think about those stories that are really going to resonate uh, with those audiences. I know that you also, you have your, your direct-to-consumer piece, but I, I also wanted to touch on the fact that you're, you're also working with a lot of business partners. And I'm interested in the role of those business partners, either B2C so where you're selling to a business that is in turn uh, making your offerings successful or whether you have direct products that specifically help those businesses in working with a similar similar shared customer. How do you think about the role of B2B and how do you kind of layer that into your business model? Exactly. So our, you know, a lot of our direct-to-consumer marketing and outreach is through social media uh, much of it is paid. You know, it's almost impossible to think of building an organ a huge organic following on social media these days. If sort of nobody knows about you, it's a bit like shouting into the ether. So we've needed to think about the right paid strategy, whether it's Facebook or Google or LinkedIn or other platforms to kind of get our message out. We do a lot of content creation with blogs, with email one-to-ones to our subscribers and to our users. And you know, we love to be able to get this out into the media and talk about it and just, you know, all the ways that people sort of know the direct-to-consumer channels. On the B2B2C side, 
you know, what we've seen is that estate planners, funeral homes, life insurance companies, they all have clients and customers who are already kind of in this headspace of thinking about, let's call it the afterlife, if you will, or what is it that they're leaving behind? And so what we see is that they can either create this as an add-on, something that's kind of a value add to their existing products, something that they might offer at a discounted rate. Maybe we create a partnership where there's a revenue share. They come in through that door and kind of you know enter us through a different door or vice versa. You know, we want to make it so that there's kind of a mutually beneficial way to get this message out to people at the right time. Um, and what we've learned, I would say, is that, for example, with a funeral home, you know, pe- people might sign up to create uh, or to, to think about what their funeral looks like well before they're going to die. You know, it, it, they may have just said, well, you know, we're, we're getting up in age a little bit. We were healthy and, and everything seems fine. But we want to just, you know, take care of this now and choose exactly how we would like to go out with a blaze of glory or whatever it is that people want to do uh, for their funeral. So that's kind of the pre-care, you know, moment. Then there's the aftercare moment when people have already, you know, the funeral has happened. Maybe they have a family member who then they realize, oh no, what about all of their, you know, accounts and, and everything they've ever created, those photos that are on their computer? How do I get access to that? So there's kind of a, there's a spectrum of where people fall with those B2C partners of ours. And so we want to also think about how to get them. Sometimes those are through direct-to-consumer channels that they have, any way that we can kind of bring them into the mix or into this kind of broader ecosystem. Do you have specific features and, and benefits for those businesses to support them in their efforts? Or are they serving more as a marketing channel or, or both? It's a bit of both. In some cases, you know, it sort of depends on, you know, the the partner who we're working with. If it is a, a funeral home provider, they might be more interested in offering what we call our sort of like white glove or VIP service where we can actually take care of somebody's digital legacy on behalf of a family member. The reality is that if any of us want to take on trying to get access to all of this on behalf of somebody who has died, it can be complex, tedious, confusing. You know, it is not a simple process. This is something that we went through with countless sites just to learn what that's like. And so we kind of want to create this like bespoke offering for some partners who can offer that. On the other hand, if you're an estate planner or a financial planner, the idea of planning ahead is maybe what's more interesting to them. And, and then along the way, you know, not recently, a couple months ago, we launched something called Good Trust Memories, which is all about animating still photos and and, and kind of bringing to life pictures from the past or even from the, you know, the recent past and turning them into an animation of some kind, a video essentially with AI and facial recognition. And that can appeal to sort of all different audiences. So whatever it is that we can kind of help to pull people into this, this holistic way of looking at, at end of life planning, the will creation that we're going to be launching soon is something that we can see adding value to some of those other partners as well. So the reality is, Robbie. I mean, we—I think we all know this inherently. We are our time pie. If we sort of think about it as a pie, the slivers of time that we have to devote to anything in life get smaller and smaller and smaller all the time. We want to have enough time for our children, for the work that we do, for the activities that we enjoy, for whatever it is we want to do with entertainment. And so, for journalists, for media companies. For any business that's trying to just wedge themselves into those tiny slivers of time, you have to think about what's most valuable to that audience. 
and come up with a story or a message that feels like it's authentic, that it feels like it's in service of that time, even if it's only 10 seconds or two minutes of a video or whatever it is, that it feels like you're respecting that person and that you can communicate effectively in that really narrow window and be able to pull them into something. So we we have to think strategically about what those partners want, what their audiences want, and then the goals and uh, objectives of our company as well, and how do those fit together? I think a, a really important takeaway is that when you're expanding beyond the direct-to-consumer audience and working with businesses that are going to represent you, to recognize that they have slightly different objectives and they might have different needs, and that might mean new features, new story, new ways of communicating, that it needs to be thought about in a, in a discreet way. I, I appreciate you sharing that. I wanted to ask you, you've had a really interesting career. You've had jobs, as you mentioned, both in, in tech, notably with Google and with news media, see CBS News and CNN. Um, what are the skills that you learned in those two places that are most helpful to you in this entrepreneurial role with Good Trust? What are the most important skills that you've gained? Oh boy, Robbie. I mean, uh, you know, I would say, so apologize for diverging a little bit here. I promise I'm answering your question, but both my mom and my dad, my, my dad's a, a, an electronics technician or, or essentially an engineer and spent 30 years going to the Arctic to study climate change uh, with, with researchers in the Arctic. My mom, she had a dream of becoming a nurse. She ended up working in academia for, for her career. So I'm kind of the byproduct of somebody who's passionate about healthcare and learning and somebody who focuses on technology and discovery. And what I ended up doing in my life was to try to capture those stories and share them with a wider audience. I would say that if I learned anything, it's that you just need to be yourself. And that can feel really difficult, oddly. Um, you know, when I was at CNN, I went to CNN, I was a daily reporter at the Vancouver Sun, and I went to CNN to work for CNN.com. I never imagined myself being on television. I was asked to go on television 20 years ago. Out of the blue, it's, I'll spare you the longer story, but there's still a picture online today of <laughs> how shocked and scared I looked the first time I went on CNN live to talk about something. I'm, I think what maybe the producers liked about it was that I didn't really know anything other than just to be me, <laughs> as scary as that was. And so... And the same is true of when I went to work at Google. I, I left the news business 10 years ago to work at a technology company. I had covered science and technology, did a master's in journalism, a focus in technology. It's always been my kind of passion, science, technology, space environment. But when I went to Google, I didn't know what it was going to be like to work at a, at a company like Google. I had no sense of, of what that meant. It seemed like everybody else knew more than I did. There was some amount of imposter syndrome when I went into to work at Google so all I could think of was to just kind of be me, which sounds a little <laughs> cliche, but I think what what that taught me, I guess, is that, you know, that can connect with people. That kind of, I'm, I'm going to call it vulnerability, and I hope that's not an overused word in 2021, but that kind of vulnerability, I would argue, helps to create trust with an audience when you're particularly a national audience, if you're telling a story to people. But even when you're representing a company like Google, and I would, as a spokesperson, I would go on the Today Show or I would go on these other you know, really high profile broadcasts. And some part of me was re would really stress out and think I'm representing Google, this, you know, this massive, 
iconic company. And then I would think, well, I, but what can I do but be me and just talk about it in a way that felt real? And, and I think it, you know, I, I hope that that extends into good trust because with a name like Good Trust, we really have no choice but to be a <laughs> yeah. trusted company. We're really asking a lot of people to trust us with their choices and, and in some cases their data and their information. There are all sorts of privacy issues wrapped up in this, legal issues. We really have to take this incredibly seriously. So I think that that's my hope. And I would say that for any company out there, whether it's a media company or any other company, that can feel really oddly, again, really hard to just be that kind of transparent self in the way that you communicate with consumers, with customers. But that's, I think, what people want. You know, that's what they crave. That's what, you know, resonates. That's what works. But it can be a little kind of scary to push through that membrane of feeling buttoned up or it's got to be perfect or it's got to be this or that. I have made countless mistakes in my life, Robbie. I have lost track of how many mistakes I've made in my life. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I think the, the only way that you can maybe feel okay with all of that is you say, well, I learned from them over time. And you start to become a little more comfortable with the fact that you will always make mistakes. But if you can, you know, admit that, hold yourself accountable, ensure that people can see that, that kind of transparency, maybe another overused word. But the reality is that that, I think, is what can really convey a message clearly and in a way that people go, I'm going to take a second and listen to what this person is saying or or what they're sharing or read a little bit more about it. And, and I think it goes back to that idea of respecting people, you know, that that everybody has so many different demands on their time and stuff that they're worried about and thinking about in their in their life. I mean, my gosh. So what is it that we're offering that we think people should pay attention to? And again, that can go back to news or it's about business. But I certainly was humbled throughout this entire process. I, I'd like to say that I've kind of come out the other side, but life isn't over till it's over. So we'll see where it goes from here. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I love, you know, definitely the, the transparency and the, and, and the bringing your full self, the quirkiness, I think is from a storytelling perspective and from a communication perspective, I think people connect to that, not not by trying to be quirky, but by saying, this is this is who I am. I'm a guy who's interested in news. I'm interested in science. I'm interested in climate. That's not what we're talking about today, but that's something that I bring with me. I think, A, makes it easier for people to connect. And B, I've been doing this for a long time, let's just say. So I have a, a lot of years racked up. And those sometimes random different experiences that I've had come to bear in what I do every day. And I think that's so important too, is that you're you're willing to bring your whole self in. And even if you're intimidated or you, know, you said, you know, this imposter syndrome of, you know, I'm a guy at, at Google and I'm representing this huge company, then you say, no, I have my own perspective and that's all I've got. And actually, maybe that's more interesting to people than if I was a suit reading or a hoodie, I guess in the case of Google, if I were just a, a you know, a hoodie reading our three top media messages, which isn't interesting at all. So I want to segue into your title, Chief Storyteller. What does that mean? And is that a job of the future? Well, Robbie, you know, I had the opportunity to create that title. So (laughs) it was, it was, was, (laughs) Ricardo and I talked about it. Yeah, right. And to, to me, I, I hope it represents a focus and an emphasis on both the story of good trust. So in a business sense, what's our marketing saying? 
What are our communications, our PR, our blogs, our product? How is that thread kind of woven throughout everything that Good Trust represents? What is the story of Good Trust? On the other hand, I think it's also about taking care of other people's stories. So that's really what we want to be is a place where we can sort of be this hub or nexus of where people share and, and store and preserve and decide what happens to all this. So in, in a sense, I, I like to think that it does, it comes with, with a great deal of responsibility, I think both on behalf of Good Trust, but on behalf of our users and people who are placing their trust in us. In terms of how other companies view the concept of a storyteller, I would say it's probably one of the oldest job descriptions in the history of humanity that we have all been telling stories or listening to stories since we huddled around campfires and could listen to others or see what they were telling us. You know, the earliest storytellers were also journalists. You know, they would come from another part of the village or the, the region or the, you know, wherever they were and share those stories. People would learn. This is sort of like the, the early seeds of journalism, if you will. This was how people heard about anything that was beyond their their immediate sphere of, of understanding. And I think that stories will always be something that is critical to companies to think about. What is the story of your company? What is it exactly? Why should people sort of think about what you're doing or even care about what you're doing? What is the story of you, right? That's something that we really want people to think about in a digital sense when it comes to good trust. Um, and I think that there's a lot of that wrapped up into that direct consumer market. One of the things that we've seen, and I think that probably most people would agree if they've come across this, there's often this sense of like, we've got to create some viral content. I've heard companies say, we've got to create viral content. We've got to create this kind of, we've got to create it. We've got to make it. Everybody's got to see it. got to create it, right? And the reality is that that authenticity of a human experience is incredibly hard to create but we know it when we see it. We know when it's real. We know when people react. So for example, there's a video that was circulating online about a month ago or so, and it was about a, a former World War II veteran who was fondly referred to, uh, still is alive, so he's fondly referred to as Papa Jake. He's in his 90s, and his granddaughter, I believe, or his daughter, put in front of him an animated photo of his wife who had passed away, Lola. And the reaction of him seeing this photo come to life, his widow, the love of his life in his 90s, I'm going to get emotional thinking about it right now. He, he's sitting in his chair and the way that he reacts to this absolutely went viral. Why? Because you can't make this stuff up. And, and I think that it's part of the DNA of who we are as human beings. And so can you create marketing material or direct messaging that mirrors that or maps to that kind of sort of you can certainly respect you know what that's like and and sort of dig into that but the more that people can i think the more that companies can really just adopt this orientation of openness if you will of this is who we are we haven't figured everything out but we're getting there here's what we think of course i think we all know the value of like user testimonials and profiles of people who's using it right what are they how do they, that stuff that we all gravitate to to see those reactions and we also know when we see it and they're like eh, that's probably an actor or you know that's somebody right we know this inherently when we see it on tv or in an ad or like wherever it is and so that emotional authenticity is something that is really hard to to kind of recreate if you will 
But when you can just be yourself as much as possible, and we all want to present our best selves, so it's not that you sort of just let yourself turn into a hot mess or something, but but to, to allow people into that, to think about that within communications, I think is, is increasingly important, particularly in a, in a connected world where we have visibility into other communities and to other people and how they live their life. It could be wildly different than us, but there is that universal humanity that we need to remember. I think the way you framed the role of storytelling and how that ties in with authenticity is so important for people to remember that this isn't a complicated marketing strategy. This is about, basically, it's about telling the truth and bringing your audience along with you on the journey. Yeah. Um, and that's what I think is at the heart of direct-to-consumer and the heart of what we're trying to talk about in this conference. So I appreciate your your insights there. We have a couple of minutes left. Are you up for doing a speed round? Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. So like top of your mind, 10 seconds per question. Here we go. Okay. What advice do you have for other people launching D2C companies in undefined blue sky spaces? Two words, which I heard uh, in the midst of all of my entrepreneurial uh, ups and downs, keep swimming. Keep swimming. What is the first subscription you remember having? The first subscription I can remember having was probably to a local newspaper in Victoria, British Columbia, where I grew up, and it was the Times Colonist. Favorite subscription today? Favorite subscription and one that I probably used the most would be either Netflix or, uh, or the New York Times. And finally, a time you felt like you belonged, that you were really connected with a company and felt like they understood you and were solving your ongoing problems or helping you achieve your ongoing goals. I have to say, it's hard to not think of Google in that way, just because so much of what Google offers addresses the needs that so many of us have. And I think it's why a company like Google is so successful. It adds so much utility to people's lives that it's it's sort of hard to ignore in that way. And I, and I, I hope that we can offer something similar to people's lives with good trust. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. My pleasure. Thank you, brother. That was Good Trust's Daniel Seberg. For more about Daniel and Good Trust, go to goodtrust.org. For more about the summit and to access the other interviews with stories from The Economist, Tesla, and Nike, among others, go to d2c.global. And for more about subscription stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Daniel, go to robbiekelmanbaxter.com slash podcast. Also, if you like what you heard, please go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention this episode if you especially enjoyed it. We read all the reviews because we want your feedback. Thanks for your support. And thanks for listening to Subscription Stories. 